Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There is a wide acceptance that we have drifted too far away from nature and that we need to pull closer. Many have called for 30 by 30, conserving 30% of nature by 2030. The 2022 State of the Birds report pointed out that more than half of bird species normally found in habitats as diverse as forests, deserts, and oceans in the United States are in decline. Climate change is a major factor in those declines, but human development also plays a key role by chewing into wildlife habitat and creating biological islands. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. How do we reverse declines in wildlife and in wildlife habitat? Can we prevent Yellowstone, Yosemite, Kings Canyon, Rocky Mountain National Parks, and other large western landscape parks from turning into biological islands? Today, we're going to explore the problems and possible solutions with Elaine Leslie, who was the National Park Service's Chief for Biological Resources before retiring, and Bart Melton, who leads the National Parks Conservation Association's Wildlife Program. We'll be back in a minute with Elaine and Bart. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at EvergladesFoundation.org. Well, welcome to The Traveler, Elaine and Bart. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. You know, this is a, a topic that is gaining more and more attention. Um, how do we preserve wildlife habitat? Can we preserve it? Can we create um, migratory corridors for species that allows them to gain more habitat and also to uh, exchange genetics and uh, avoid genetic bottlenecks? There's a short history of, of migratory corridors. Um, we've had the Wildlands Network, which has been working since 1991, to reconnect, restore, and rewild North America, as they put it. And then there's the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative, which since 1993 has been working to build a corridor from Yellowstone to the Yukon Territory in Canada. Have these, have these projects been successful at all? Are we seeing progress in, in improving migratory habitat? I think absolutely. I mean, these, these are not new concepts by any means. Uh, connectivity is a critical piece of how we're going to restore and maintain biodiversity. Uh, Reed Noss, you know, was such a brilliant person when it came to this and really used connectivity 
corridors in a landscape design level. And I think a lot of work that's been done in Florida and in the South is evident of that. Um, he was also working on some of the areas in the Rockies and, and in California and along the Pacific coast as well. So what Jody Hilty and her team have done in the Y to Y initiative has certainly served as a model and how cooperative collaboration when it comes to conservation can indeed work. Is it solving all the issues and the problems? No, not at all, but it's certainly making a dent in what those issues are. And I think the more we have those kind of initiatives and there's plenty of them out there. Um, and I would also say, don't forget about um, the air. <laughs> you talked about, about avian species and you know, using tools such as MODIS to, to provide safe pathways for birds and also look at the, at, like I said, the oceans, um, ancient pathways that have been used by marine mammals and sharks and fish. We, we need to remember those sort of things as well. It's not just land-based ungulates um, that need this. It's, and it's not just charismatic megafauna. And I think that's what Y to Y and other initiatives have exhibited that this can work for species like grizzly bear and wolverines and bobcat and mountain lion and the whole predator-prey relationship. Sure, and we'll 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 get into some of the trickle down to uh, other species, but again, to the to why to why what successes can we point to? I know they've been acquiring land and, and doing easements since 1993, but are we actually seeing wildlife take up that corridor, take advantage of the corridor that has been constructed? Yeah, I can't speak to the, the success of any individual effort across the space that large, but I think what's, what's notable is the on-the-ground successes that are occurring across that, that Yellowstone to Yukon landscape. And really, I only speak to the U.S. side of the border uh, from NPCA's perspective, but you know, there's great community-driven conservation occurring throughout the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and in the crown of the continent. You have everything from um, collaboration between conservation organizations, community members, and landowners to remove and alter fencing for pronghorn migration, seasonally opening up a historic range that hasn't seen pronghorn in uh, decades or more. You have uh, Efforts like the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes working to uh, improve habitat connectivity by reducing wildlife vehicle collision south of Glacier, um, and dozens of other examples of um, local communities coming together, working across federal agencies, private uh, landowners, and um, members of the tribal community all working together to come up with solutions around connectivity so wildlife can uh, continue to move across a really unique landscape in the world. Um, and from a parks perspective, you know, that's really important for, for the wildlife in Yellowstone. It's really important for the wildlife at Glacier. Um, and there's other examples around the country of those types of kind of locally driven um, and in some ways uh, state and federally supported efforts um, that are really exciting. And uh, we're, we're happy to see that change from the bottom up. And there's some great change occurring at the federal level, too, which we can talk about. 
Yeah, I do believe if you if you do go north of the border into Canada, um, up around Banff National Park, um, they have found that uh, wildlife crossings over the Trans-Canadian Highway has improved genetic connectivity for black and grizzly bears. Um, so that's that's one thing we can point to. You know, recently, and this is a small migratory corridor, um, we saw the um, launch in um, California, or the, the groundbreaking, of uh, a wildlife overpass over the 101 freeway. And, um, you know, obviously part of that was pushed by, it's awful tough for a mountain lion to cross 10 lanes of traffic. Um, and the other is to not only allow them to cross 10 lanes of traffic, but hopefully bring in new genetics to the, the population around the Santa Monica Mountains. Right. I mean, I think if if there's any legacy of P22, it's that, that more people understand the importance of uh, top predators and their ability to move, right? And I think that overpass has been 20 years in the making and really started with a lot of the work that Dr. Paul Beyer out of Northern Area Northern Arizona University did in the Santa Ana Mountains and the Chino Hills down by Santa Monica to bring awareness to the importance of these passages, these crossings and overpasses while not, you know, necessarily a corridor, they do provide some linkages to get to some better habitat. And that just wasn't the lions. I mean, you could see the coyotes, you could see the bear in the pictures, you know, there's, there's a whole number of species that have been using some of the larger culverts and that have those that didn't got hit by cars on the 101. So we certainly are looking forward to the completion of this and other overpasses. There's one that's just not far from my house on the 160, um, but mainly for ungulates that we've seen use that and a few smaller than these are carnivores. But you know, there's great ones. I think it's Highway 93, right? Um, if I'm not mistaken, has as a lot of evidence of animals using these. And so all of that contributes to the movement, the ability for these animals to move, to roam for that purpose of genetic diversity and to avoid interbreeding. But also, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that we have the habitat necessary so not just a corridor, but a necessary habitat that's that's big enough for animals to roam, that big enough for animals to to escape climate change impacts. Um, you know, with with increasing climates rising and and more, um, I'd say um, disaster type events, animals have to be able to move away from some of this too. You've got the invasion of weeds. You've got invasion of others exotic species. So these patches, these linkages, these connectivity corridors need to be big enough to move. I mean, we talk about parks not being big enough. I think it was George Wright back in the 30s who, who made the first awareness that, oh my God, these parks we're creating are not nearly big enough to maintain species and especially migratory species. Um, and and allow for the necessary um, biodiversity that needs to be retained in these areas and beyond. So, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's good work being done, but there's a lot more we can do. You know, I'm wondering, um, we talk about biological islands, we talk about um, these migratory corridors to improve genetic dispersal. 
Do either one of you know of any studies that raise some alarm over wildlife genetics in the national park system because of a uh, lack of uh, new genes? I mean, obviously we have Isle Royal National Park with the wolves there. That's kind of a, a unique situation because it's on an island that uh, you need an ice bridge in the wintertime. But, you know, looking at places like Yellowstone or Rocky Mountain or, um, you know, Zion National Park, any evidence that we're, we're starting to run into genetic problems at those or other parks? Um, I'll chime in here, but I would just say, you know, I always worry about the Florida Panther situation and what's happening in the Everglades and South Florida, all the way up the coast and into Texas. Um, you know, those are more or less some hybrid animals that, you know, that they, they think they've sort of got a handle on what's going on. But um, I, other, I was, going to bring up the wolf issue because that is a pretty classic example of what sorry, happened. The, the Isle Royal wolf? Isle Royal wolves, yeah. yeah. That's a pretty classic example of what can happen. And then the efforts and the money that it takes to, to get back to a good place, which they are getting there. Well, there's, there's the individual examples and then there's the long-term concern. And I think from NPCA's perspective, something we are thinking a lot about along with our conservation partners is, is sort of the dual threat of climate change and development long-term. Habitat fragmentation and climate change are, are driving what is now referred to as a global biodiversity crisis. Scientists um, are predicting current levels of habitat loss and impacts from climate change can lead to 40% of species being lost globally by the end of the century. And so there's there's the near-term impacts to populations, and I think some great localized examples that Elaine highlighted, but also planning for the scale of the challenge we're facing, I think requires some sort of longer-term thinking. And also, you know, it's it's a concern about multiple generations of wildlife and sort of where we'll be. Um, at the end of the century and what we're leaving for our children and grandchildren. And really, you know, national parks are no exception to the impacts of climate change and development as we're talking about park biodiversity, everything from not just wildlife, but plants, aquatic species, really entire ecosystems as we know them are threatened. And so connectivity is one of those solutions to addressing those problems. But I think it's important to say what are those individual issues that really have um, created a lack of connectivity, have uh, cut off traditional migration corridors? And we've pinpointed some of them, but I think it's important to sort of look at the whole picture and think about not only park adjacent road systems and a lack of um, lack of connectivity there as a result, but also um, human development from subdivisions, fencing, energy development from renewables and oil and gas, New hard rock mines like the one uh, we're dealing with that's proposed next to Gates of the Arctic uh, in Alaska and, and more. There's just lots of development occurring right up on the edges of parks. Um, and that combined with the impacts of climate change, more extreme wildfires, extreme weather events, drought, the flooding we saw at Yellowstone this year could certainly fall into that category of um, extreme weather events, massive temperature variations and trends. When those two combine, it's it's of course the you know threatened and endangered species we're worried about seeing recover today and the impacts they're feeling. 
but it's healthier populations of wildlife that um, over the next few generations could see um, severe impacts from from that sort of dual threat of development and climate change that we're really concerned about. And I think why it takes sort of a community approach and not only just a park service, but a federal agency, federal family-wide approach to addressing the challenge and the need to work with tribes, local communities, willing private landowners adjacent to parks and other federal lands and come together around some some thoughtful solutions to the challenges that we're facing on the horizon and they're unfolding today. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking today with Elaine Leslie and uh, Bart Melton from National Park Conservation Association. Uh, Elaine Leslie was uh, Park Service's Chief for Biological Resources. Um, we're talking about uh, wildlife habitat and migratory corridors and how uh, we can possibly enhance wildlife habitat and along the way bolster uh, genetic diversity. We'll be right back after a short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Interior Federal Credit Union offers a large suite of savings products, including secondary savings accounts for budgeting, individual retirement accounts, health savings accounts, education savings accounts, money marketing accounts, and certificates. Start the new year off with an account at Interior Federal Credit Union and get ready for all the adventures 2023 has to offer. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on the homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Okay, we're back with Elaine and Bart. You know, there have been... um, a handful of reports out recently about the, the problem with uh, biological islands and, and how we can solve those problems. The Pew Charitable Trust came out with one last October discussing the need for creating migratory corridors and the challenges standing in the way. The U.S. Geological Survey just released a report on ungulate corridors in the West. And a team of researchers led by William Newmark at the Utah Museum of Natural History also just released a study outlining how connections between Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks and Mount Rainier and North Cascades National Parks could greatly expand wildlife habitat and expand populations. Now, I'm, I'm curious, you know, Bart, you just mentioned all the, the various stakeholders we've got involved here, different federal agencies, uh, private landowners, state agencies. Just looking at the federal agencies, the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, the um, Bureau of Land Management, uh, I guess we could also throw in there U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they all have different missions. I mean, can can we get them all on the same page in the recognition of the value of migratory corridors and working together to see that they 
are created? Yes, I think we can. But, you know, in this case, I don't think the federal agencies can do it alone. They have to collaborate with states. They have to work with private landowners and uh, importantly, need to work with tribes too in a, a new and different way. The great news is there's a lot that's happening and has already happened that I think is critically important steps from the policy perspective that, that are really notable um, in recent years. First up, this is a bipartisan issue, which, which makes it a problem we can solve together because we already are. During the Trump administration, then Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke signed Secretarial Order 3362, which directed the Department of Interior agencies to work with uh, 11 different Western states to conserve winter raid migration corridors for mostly game species, uh, mostly ungulates, pronghorn, elk, mule deer. Um, but this has led to a comprehensive improvement of our understanding of ungulate migrations in the West. You mentioned the USGS study. That's a direct result of, of that effort. Secretary Holland, um, under President Biden, is committed to continue investments in that effort, and they have, have done so with the release of the new report. But there's a lot more that the administration and Congress has done that I think is worth noting. The administration recommended the expansion of collaborative conservation of fish and wildlife habitats and corridors in their Conserving and Restoring America the Beautiful report. That's the sort of overarching uh, statement of intent for the Biden administration. Um, and a lot of that's a carryover from what we saw with uh, Secretary Order 3362, but hopefully going bigger, thinking of more species, thinking about the rest of the country um, and the territories. They've also committed to improve wildlife corridors in President Biden's Build Back Better plan, in the president's budget for fiscal year 22. Corridors and connectivity are, are mentioned um, throughout. But there's some really important things that have happened that I, I think we can't have this conversation without noting. One is the uh, passage um, of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which included access to billions to reduce wildlife vehicle collisions through mitigation efforts, that's strategic fencing, overpasses, underpasses. The legislation for the first time specifically established a pilot $350 million grant program for wildlife vehicle collision reduction for federal agencies, tribes, and states to apply for project-specific support. The last Congress also passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides critical dollars for the Park Service, BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, that they can use to support improved connectivity and corridor conservation over the next decade. Importantly, USDA also received dollars through that um, legislation that can be used to support voluntary private landowner conservation efforts. This is a lot of wonky sounding sort of things, but what it amounts to is uh, a turning of the ship, I think, to some degree, the slow turning of the federal ship towards um, this issue of connectivity and corridors and a, a collaborative approach to it, because this isn't just about the federal agencies. This is about all the partners that need to come together. All the pieces are there. And I think the administration has a real opportunity uh, to take all this and point it in the right direction and start to address this, this sort of dual threat of um, development and climate change in relation to uh, wildlife conservation in national parks and, and more broadly across the United States and North America. There's one other thing I would I would flag, and and that's the agencies are are starting to take specific steps under this administration too. 
the Bureau of Land Management, which um, manages a lot of land adjacent to National Park Service managed lands around the West, recently released a uh, habitat connectivity memo, an instructional memo for agency-wide instructional memo that directs uh, planning and on-the-ground management actions, conservation and restoration efforts to ensure areas remain intact and healthy um, to support diverse wildlife and plant populations. So lots of actions on corridors, but, you know, I guess to actually get to your question, Kurt, can we do more? Yes, and I think um, we've been thinking through some very specific steps we'd like to see federal agencies take uh, in the coming years to to do more on this issue because we've got a lot of work to do. But the good news is we are doing something. Well, you know, I'm I'm curious about policy because you know you mentioned uh, former Interior Secretary Zinke. Um, he was in favor of grizzly re- or recovery. Um, in the North Cascades complex, and then his successor, interior, former Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, said, no, I don't want it. Um, the, the local communities don't want it. We're going to shut it down. And so I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned a lot of the, the money flowing through the current administration's policies, Build Back Better and the Infrastructure Reduction Act. You know, the, the new um, slim Republican majority in the House of Representatives, you know, wants to cut back spending. And do we need to hardwire through legislation the policy of enhancing wildlife habitat so that one administration can't cancel what the past administration did? And so we're just ping-ponging back and forth. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this has been a bipartisan issue, but we are advocating for a comprehensive solution long-term. NPCA supported, along with many partners, uh, the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act in the last Congress, and that was comprehensive corridors-focused legislation that did pass out of uh, the House. And that was notable progress. That legislation, in some way, shape, or form, has been floating around since 2014, 2015. And so making it out of the House last year was, was real progress. As that effort has slowly worked its way forward, nine states have passed corridors legislation, um, and many others have dedicated funding to reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. Um, Many tribes have now uh, passed their own resolutions or policies that are working to address the problem across the U.S. So there is this slow sort of shift occurring with states like Florida and California right out front on uh, wildlife corridors conservation being addressed through legislation. We'll continue to push for that this Congress. I think um, it remains to be seen what that opportunity is, but we'll be looking for bipartisan support for that. And, um, you know, folks like Don Beyer of uh, Virginia really have been pushing that for years. And I think we owe a lot of credit to those that have been sort of quietly pushing this forward in Congress for almost a decade now. Um, That said, there are some policy changes that are pretty basic that we would like to see addressed through Congress, and we think there's an opportunity for the administration to address. One is identification of wildlife corridors. We're doing great work, I think, as a country on the ungulate identification. That new USGS report is a fantastic read, amazing information in there, so much to learn. Um, We have a lot more to learn as a country, and we have a great agency with USGS that can partner with states and tribes and others to help get that done. The protection and management of wildlife corridors and connectivity. There's a lot of existing agency authority 
um, to manage, protect, and restore wildlife corridors and to support tribes and private landowners in that work. And, and we'd love to see more of that. And something that the federal agencies can do, you raised that earlier, Kurt, sort of what does collaboration look like? How are these federal agencies working together? We're recommending, and um, the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act recommended the establishment of a formal cross-departmental interagency management body for federal natural resource managers to work with relevant regional governments, tribal leaders, state wildlife authorities to collaborate on the protection and restoration of corridors and connectivity around parks, of course, um, but also nationwide. And uh, we're also recommending more funding, but as I mentioned earlier, there's a significant opportunity to take existing dollars and invest them today in that. So yes, we need a lasting solution, but we also have a lot of opportunity with the current administration based on the actions of previous administrations to sort of rally around this issue and um, really work on the problem. Uh, Lane, we're going to take a short break, but I want to come back to you after the break about uh, successes that we're seeing across the national parks. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking today with Elaine Leslie, uh, who was the National Park Service's Chief for Biological Resources before retiring, and Bart Melton, who leads the National Parks Conservation Association's Wildlife Program. We'll be back in a minute. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable that's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Okay, we're back talking about wildlife habitat, migration corridors, um, bottlenecks and successes. And uh, Elaine, I'm curious, um, Bill Newmark, who I mentioned earlier from uh, the Utah Museum of Natural History, back in 1995, he came out with a report that looked at um, the loss of wildlife that had been native in national parks um, originally before the parks were existed, before the parks were created. And he looked at um, you know the losses of wildlife that we had seen because these parks had uh, either turned into biological islands or... Um, you know, we we wanted to uh, drive them out, so to speak. We didn't want to share the landscape with those parks, and and some of the numbers were were pretty um, pretty extraordinary in terms of percentage of of mammalian wildlife that was lost. Um, you know, in some places, twenty five percent parks like uh, Yosemite and, and Bryce Canyon and Zion. Have we seen progress in recovering some of those species, some of those native species that were forced out? Sure, and I think Dr. Berger, Joel Berger, came up with another paper. I think that was in the mid-80s, maybe early 90s, that um, sort of 
did a lot of number calculating on the amount of species that have been lost and where is our National Park Service um, priority at restoration of species. And, and that was a good paper as well to, to uh, have a read at. But yes, I, I think we're making great progress. It's probably not as fast as I'd like to see. <laughs> and generally it's because funding and time and capacity is very limited when it comes to species restoration. And you need to not look at just species restoration, but you need to look at habitat restoration. You don't wanna put something back into something that's of lesser quality and they're not gonna be able to, to make a go of it <laughs> in perpetuity. But you can't go to Grand Canyon or now maybe the Redwoods or Zion and and, look at a condor flying and not be in awe that we brought this thing back. And was that a National Park Service effort alone? Absolutely not. It was states, it was zoos, it was a myriad of organizations that did that. So it's not just a matter of a park going and saying, oh, I'm going to bring back this species. It takes a lot of people and a lot of energies. I think Rainier has done a great job. Chip, Chip Jenkins was there. He's at Grand Tetons now. But uh, multiple mesocarnivore species are back there. Yosemite has had great success. Um, so there's a lot going on out there, but it's slow because there's compliance and there's funding and there's lack of staff to carry out these initiatives. But that's what we'd like to see. I think in every region, um, an action plan that looks at the restoration of at-risk species, but Combined with that, not only the restoration of those species, but ensuring their habitat is quality habitat, working with your neighbors to ensure that they have the, the amount of room they need to persist. And that whole compounded thing of looking at climate change and, and what's going to be able to be maintained in that particular park. And, and then what Bart was saying, you know, looking at sprawl outside of parks, um, it's, it's pretty huge. I think that's almost more impacting than not having some of these designated corridors or lines on a map right now. If you look, especially what's going on outside of Yellowstone or Grand Canyon or, or other places. But yes, I think we've made progress. The National Park Service itself, under John Jarvis, we had the call to action. And we had a whole action item on making sure parks were aware and the public was aware. It's called There and Back Again. It was about migratory species and knowing what's in your park that is a migratory species and working with others to ensure its migration and its path is successful there and back again. And that, that was successful and has now morphed into Connected Conservation, a program within the National Park Service but what I'd like to also see is that every region in the National Park Service has a conservation biologist. And that conservation biologist can be in the region or in the learning centers, which would be great too, to have those as, as a productive centerpiece for this sort of dialogue. But we used to have science advisors in every region for the regional director. And I don't think we have one anymore. Um, the last couple are now gone. But so what can that morph into? But a, a landscape conservation biologist would be a great start. And I think there's a couple regions that are really making some good moves toward this. But I think it's something that needs to be um, 
ingrained in the National Park Service and really come up with some strategies and visions for the future in those particular regions. And there's a lot that parks can do and are doing as well we can talk about in a minute. Yeah, I think this could be a three-part or a four-part series. You know, and of course, there's a, the resiliency of some of these species. I mean, you mentioned Mount Rainier, and of course, we've seen wolverines return there and, and breed in recent years. We've heard of uh, wolverines going from the Yellowstone ecosystem down to the Uintas in northern Utah, which kind of surprises me. I'd like to see that. And of course, we had the case of uh, um, the gray wolf from the Yellowstone ecosystem show up on the Grand Canyon, the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So obviously, they, they have the desire to move. They, they want to expand their, their territories, so to speak. Looking at California, um, we've got some great national parks there, Yosemite, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, uh, Lassen, I could go on and on and on. There was a proposal recently to create a range of light national monument between Yosemite National Park and Kings Canyon National Park by basically transferring, I guess, uh, the bulk of the Sierra National Forest over to the Park Service. Is that needed to enhance the connectivity, the wildlife habitat between those two parks? I don't know that it would enhance it other than I don't know the percentage of logging that occurs in, in the Forest Service lands there. Maybe BART does. Is it a great step? Yes. Will it happen? I doubt it. <laughs> I don't have a lot of faith in that. Um, would it be an, a terrific linkage and, and ability for wildlife and species to be restored in that? I think the Forest Service should not be dismissed as doing good work as well. Um, and there's a lot of challenges with being in the Forest Service uh, versus being with the Park Service that has a lot of policies and a lot of great tools um, um, legislated to us to be able to do preservation of habitat and restoration of species and habitat. So I, I don't know if that will happen. It would be nice, but I think we also need to Perfect example of working with your neighbors, working with the other federal agencies, you know, dive into the state action plans. If you're a park service person, you know, have a presence at some of these discussions um, and then come to the table and see what you can both put on the table for collaborative conservation when it comes to these areas so that you do have seamless management in some areas. You're not always going to have it in every area, but I think you can come to the table and agree on some. We can hope. Now, Bart, I'm curious. Migratory corridors, some of them are going to stretch hundreds of miles. I don't know how wide they would have to be, anywhere from two miles to 30 miles or 40 miles, perhaps. You're going to be crossing a lot of roads. Um, it costs to, to build overpasses and underpasses. Any any guesstimate of, of how much money we're talking to make these things a reality and, and where that money would come from? Well, I think the last transportation authorization bill that I mentioned before is, is a good start for us as a country to start to wrap our arms around this issue. And um, we're hopeful that that funding will allow, will support state and federal agencies engaging not just in mitigation, but in studies, much like the mapping of corridors and connectivity and the need for better understanding, like we're seeing the great document I referenced out of USGS earlier on Ungolits in the West. That, that kind of improved hard science to inform decision-making is critical. And I think before we rush to 
do overpasses and underpasses everywhere. We know some places where we need, you know, an improved culvert here or maybe an overpass there. One, there's a lot of opportunity to integrate wildlife vehicle collision mitigation into things like bridge replacement, like we're seeing um, between Great Smoky Mountains and adjacent national forests in the Pigeon River Gorge on Interstate 40 right now. And that's being driven by good hard science, understanding how animals are moving through that space. We need that, that level of science to inform decision-making on infrastructure investments, but also it doesn't have to be a standalone project. It can be part of how we build roads in the country over time, but um, we've got a lot to learn. I think we know we have a problem and in some places we understand that problem better than others. And hopefully we'll, we'll learn as we go. Um, but we've, committed to do a lot of infrastructure investment. And I hope that um, state transportation agencies will work with federal land managers and, uh, and their state fish and game agency partners and tribes to understand what those problems look like um, in their backyard. But uh, we've, we've got a lot of work to do, no doubt. Any concerns about societal opposition? I mean, you know, you can go back to the the 70s and 80s with the shoot, shovel, and shut up. We don't want a threatened or endangered species anywhere close to our property. Um, you've got situations with um, urban sprawl that laps over into wildlife habitat, and all of a sudden grizzly bears are showing up in backyards in Jackson Hole and West Yellowstone, or um, cougars are showing up even where I live in northern Utah Moose are showing up, elk are showing up, and, and some people don't like that. Um, is that going to be a major impediment to, to some of these migratory corridors? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Grizzly Bear Recovery Program for North Cascades Complex was shut down in part because of local opposition. Yeah, the good news is the Grizzly Bear Recovery effort seems to be back on its feet and out for public comment. So we're hopeful on North Cascades Grizzly Restoration. But I think it's easy in these conversations to focus in on the tough decisions we have to make. Like, you know, if you live next to Yellowstone and you have bison between you and your car, when you walk out uh, to take your kids to school, bison are tough neighbors. Um, so you're, there's, there's certainly a community level conversation that needs to be had about how that animal's moving through the landscape and how you're managing that um, as a community. And that's multiple people coming together to figure that out. But I think there's a whole other side to this, um, which is uh, the issue of aquatic connectivity. We have um, culverts that are dilapidated, that are cutting off salmon migrations, and trout migrations. We have salamander populations that might have a much shorter migration, but are no less important. And around the country, we've got a lot to learn about how development, uh, not only within parks, but adjacent to parks, impacts the long-term health of species. And I think if anything, I'd like to think that um, people who live next to Grand Teton or are uh, at Acadia in Maine as their backyard care about those spaces and care about the wildlife and are willing to come to the table and to come up with solutions that make sense um, to protect those spaces. Elaine, I'd be curious, um, over your career, I'm sure that you sat in more than a, a few meetings over wildlife issues with local populations. What, what's your sense of uh, society's position on migratory corridors and open up their, their backyards potentially to, to bears or elk or bison? Well, I think, I think there are some communities that certainly do it and do it well um, and have great education 
programs to help people make make it through those things. I live in Durango and there's a great, you know, be bear smart program that allows people to ensure they can enjoy the natural world around them that they've moved into and but also protect protect the wildlife. I mean, and that's a very critical thing. Um, I I think Bart mentioned it before though that you know there is opposition to a federally designated corridor uh, because it's kind of along the lines of do we need another federally protected land that you know the government's controlling that sort of thing so i think through education and really working with communities we can make it through some of those obstacles but it takes a lot of effort and i really believe that national parks are anchors for these linkages like you were talking about just you know whether it's the path of the pronghorns emanating from uh, Grand Tetons or that Wolverine that made it all the way from Grand Tetons went through Rocky and crossed I-70. You know, how do we work better with the people along the way to make sure that they understand that, you know, wildlife are not necessarily second class <laughs> stakeholders in this thing, that we need to make them a priority um, if we're going to continue to enjoy not only our public lands, whether on a federal, state, or community level, but as a whole, as a vision, as this piece of trying to better understand global biodiversity and how to restore and retain that. If we can't live with our coyote friend across the road, then I, you know, are we living that well with our neighbor next door? I don't know. <laughs> You know, I'm afraid we're, we're running out of time, but one other uh, topic I wanted to get in before we um, said goodbye, down species benefits. I mean, we're talking about climate change and enhancing habitat, you know, for, you know, large mammalian species. Um, but there's also got to be uh, some down species benefits through this as well, aren't, aren't there? Absolutely. And I think that's one thing Y to Y and some of the Florida initiatives have really shown um, is that, you know, the science behind monitoring some of these underpasses and overpasses and these corridors prove that, you know, it's not just the ungulate, uh, you know, that is benefiting. It's, it's the whole predator-prey relationship, but also it gives those mesocarnivores and others the ability to move as well. I mean, I think not sure what paper was in today. It might have been the Washington Post or the New York Times, but it just showed some camera traps. And, and it was kind of interesting because the whole premise of the story was showed, you know, turkeys and bears and, you know, deer and whatever. And it was interesting because it showed that the some of these corridors of linkages that might be too small are ushering in conflicts with species that wouldn't normally come into contact with each other. Um, so that, that's an interesting aspect as well. Um, as you know, if you can get a grizzly bear to move through someplace, you can get whatever else, the wolverine or the, you know, the, the smaller mesocarnivores, et cetera, to be able to move through that too. But you also have to be cognizant that there could be these other kinds of conflicts created. Sure, sure. But I think those corridors also uh, open up the possibility for, for vegetation um, that needs to move to a higher elevation, perhaps because of climate change. And also 
when it comes to vegetation, noxious weeds and and um, non-native species also have the ability to move through these, whether True. they're flora or fauna. And so paying attention to, to what we're doing. I mean, if you have increased climate change, increased hotter, warmer, sometimes wetter, you're going to see some of these uh, species move through and make really um, unusual, unusable habitat to some degree. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, there's another angle, I think in the lower 48, especially in some of the territories, we're thinking a lot about restoration of connectivity, maintenance of connectivity, sort of dealing with development and other threats. And it's interesting, NPCA's work in Alaska with our tribal partners there and others is a little different because our work there is to maintain solidly existing connected spaces on the map, be it uh, the pebble mine or the recently proposed um, 210 mile long Ambler Road at Gates of the Arctic, which 20 miles of that road would cut through the preserved portion of the Gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve. And it would open up a whole new hard rock mining district in Northwest Alaska. And the implications of that are huge. The Western Arctic caribou herd is the second largest land migration on earth. Um, it covers the distance annually of, uh, I think, Miami to Seattle across that small little corner of Alaska up there. So I wow. forget just how large that state is. But caribou have shown that they're extremely susceptible to disturbance, specifically roads. And we'd basically be cutting their annual migration in half with a 210-mile road, opening up a new mining district, and really impacting Native communities. Uh, the, uh, enjoy and want to maintain their subsistence lifestyle beyond park borders, but the park and preserve is, is part of their subsistence sort of cultural right um, and heritage. And so we have lots of conversations to have in the lower 48, but we also have some important conversations to have in Alaska about how our decision-making can impact um, ecosystems that are for all intents and purposes intact. So um, I think connectivity isn't just a Wyoming issue. It's not just a Florida issue. It's an Alaska issue, too. Yeah. Well, Bart and Elaine, it's been great uh, having you for this discussion today. A lot of provocative uh, topics to consider and issues to try and figure out. And uh, hopefully down the road, we'll have uh, some success stories to talk about. Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Elaine. Great to see you all. that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll continue our look into the need for migratory corridors for wildlife and what progress is being made or can be made. My guest will be Dr. William Newmark from the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City. Dr. Newmark is the lead author of a recent paper looking at how Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks and Mount Rainier and North Cascades National Parks can be linked by migratory corridors. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. 
visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.